The title of my message this morning is, What Will You Do With Jesus? What Will You Do With Jesus? A very common phrase that we use, and honestly, the title of a hymn that we know well of. I want to read Matthew 27, a a lengthy passage regarding here the leading up to the crucifixion. There's so much that happens here, but I, I want to read a portion of Matthew 27, and then we'll hone in on just some some key things in this text. So Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down at the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus unto the common hall and gathered unto him all the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, They put it upon his head and a reed in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, ming- to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots, and sitting down, they watched him there. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into this passage, this historical event, I even now sense the soberness of the students here and of all of us as we consider again the path to the cross, the price that was paid and the suffering that's already begun, and what it means for us today is really the importance of what we need to discuss. What will we do with Jesus in our lives today? What does this mean to us? 
What are the benefits of it? How can we be helped by it day by day? Even just this portion of the text. Guide us now through this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Congressional Medal of Honor is our nation's highest decoration. It's not awarded to a civilian, but to a military individual of any of the branches. And it is awarded uniquely for heroism, bravery, courage in combat. It's just one of many medals that the United States has many, many dozens, scores of medals. The highest there, the Congressional Medal of Honor, I'm sure you've all heard of it. Stories are breathtaking. How many of you have heard of the Congressional Medal of Honor? Yeah, all of you. The second highest award in the United States military is this Distinguished Service Cross. And then from there to the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and many, many more awards, decorations, worn on a soldier's uniform from then on, the rest of their lives while they don that uniform. There have been 3,530 of those medals awarded to servicemen. But since 1941... More than half of them have been awarded posthumously. Think about that. Since 1941, the beginning of World War II, more than half of the Congressional Medal of Honors are actually awarded to a family member near kin because of the death of the person who was acting in bravery in combat. Did you know that the Roman Empire also had decorations? They had really borrowed the idea, we think, from the Greeks. Didn't originate with them, but they had distinct awards that were awarded for heroism in combat. Now, let me say that the most difficult, the most dangerous event on a battlefield is called encirclement. If you're on a battlefield and you're in combat, the last thing that you want to happen to you and your fellow soldiers is encirclement. It's otherwise called surrounded. And it has happened in every conflict, in every age. It might be 10 men. It might be 10,000. The largest encirclement that we understand has ever happened was the encirclement of 600,000 men by 1.1 million. Normally, when you're encircled, you are the minority. The enemy has the majority greater than you, and there's no way out. In most cases, most cases, an encircled force, be it small or large, is doomed. If you're within um, some fortification, some 
barricade of some sort, well, then we call it a siege. It might take longer, weeks, months, sometimes years. But without help from the outside, inevitably you're doomed. Food and water, ammunition will, supplies will wane. You'll run out eventually. The enemy knows that. They hold the ground. You're surrounded. Do you know we were born that way? And circled. By? By what? Sin, the enemy, right? Remember what I said. It is necessary, it is needful for someone to break the siege, to bring relief, reinforcements, supplies. Was there a time in your life when you got that? When somebody broke through the siege and got to you? Was there? Spiritually, right? What happened in that moment? What happened? Did you get saved? Amen. Could you have broken the seed yourself? Was there any hope in and of yourself? No. And in most cases, that is the case. We're well aware in American history of these sorts of events, militarily. The Alamo. Do we have anybody from Texas? Anybody at least born in Texas? Nobody? One. One? Two. Okay, the Alamo. Right? Didn't we have a group of uh, music students go to the Alamo? I don't think it was open, but were were you there? Okay, well, you should be up here telling me about it then. (laughs) Yeah, the Alamo. Well, we've all heard of it. 1836, 189 men inside that compound, that mission, surrounded by we don't even know how many. Somewhere near 3,000, some say many as 6,000. What hope do they have? Colonel William Travis had sent many letters out across Texas asking for relief, reinforcements. Only a handful came. Nowhere near enough to break the siege of the Mexican army. And as far as we know, all 189 died at the Alamo. And there's other stories of that. This last summer, I was down in Georgia, right? Was somebody else in Georgia? Uh, Mr. Greenewalt was there. We were there together in Georgia. And on the way home, headed back north, amen? Okay, whatever. We'll try that again sometime. Maybe you southerners are saying amen, go north, get out of here. Uh, Anyway, from Atlanta to Chattanooga, we're following a path. I had to stop at a battlefield. Why not? Right? What else would you do? <laughs> exactly. My thought, my thought, too. So we stopped at a battlefield called Alatoona Pass. Anybody know anything about Alatoona Pass? Sherman was camped near Atlanta. Hood had escaped Atlanta, the siege there, and was headed north, breaking up the rail lines that would supply Sherman's army in Georgia. And he came to a depot 
a fortress really, a fort, at Alatoona Pass, one of the stopping places along the railroad, where 1,500 northern soldiers were guarding that pass, that rail line, and those supplies that were needed by Sherman. And Hood, as he went by on his way to Chattanooga, split off 6,000 soldiers to go over and take Alatoona Pass, surrounding that Union Army on top of this it's not really a mountain, but it's a high hill there uh, right next to Alatoona Pass where the train comes through. And they were besieged there. The battle began. On top of that hill was a 60-foot pine tree that uh, all of the limbs had been cut off. Can you fathom 60 feet? That's a six-story building on top of a hill. Men would climb up that. On top, they had built a platform. How, I don't know. And from there, they would signal down to Atlanta, Kennesaw Mountain, 18 miles away, with flags. The flag on a 16-foot pole on a 60-foot tree. How'd you like to hang on to that thing? <laughs> Gust of wind comes up. And they're literally signaling down towards Atlanta, help. We are in real trouble here. And for hours, they got no reply from Kennesaw Mountain as they look in their binoculars in the distance until finally the reply came, hold the fort, I'm coming, W.T. Sherman. Now do you know the story? Major Whittle was telling that story later as he gave the gospel one night in Rockford, Illinois. And in that meeting was D.L. Moody and P.P. Bliss. P.P. Bliss heard that story of the Battle of Alatoona Pass and sat down and wrote, Hold the Fort, the hymn that we're familiar with. An army that was under siege, only in this case, the relief army came in time, broke the siege, and the battle was not lost there. You and I might be under siege more often than just at our salvation. It might be that you're under siege right now. The enemy is around you. Your roommates, for example. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. However, the student affairs office could also qualify. Uh, no, you might be under siege. You might need some relief. Somebody to break through for you. Somebody to bring hope. Somebody to resupply you. Yeah. It could be that way. Could be that way daily. Frankly, this morning as I came over for our staff meeting at 7.30 and then sat down to a quick breakfast there, I noticed many students coming in, obviously burdened. I would say hello to this one. Hello to that one. They could barely eke out a smile. I thought, wow, school has begun. <laughs> yeah, wow, it was amazing. Now, it is interesting that standing at the back of the uh, chapel here, uh, just moments ago, these, some of these same students coming in now, big smiles, big smiles. Obviously did well in that quiz. Uh, reinforcements broke through somehow and brought relief. We do need relief, don't we? 
Should we find it in ourselves? Can we find it in ourselves? More and more throughout the school year, we're going to find the need for relief. Let's go back to the Roman army. The Roman army had two high awards that I want to speak of. Now, they had many. Now, their awards were not given in the form of a medal at all or a ribbon to be worn. They were always in the form of a crown. Again, they borrowed that from the Greeks, the idea. You would see it. Many times a wreath of some sort would be given. Now, the Greeks gave it for athletic events, yes, right? But also for fine arts, achievements in fine arts. That was the Greeks. The Romans didn't care as much about those things. It was military for them. These were military awards. The second highest military award for the Romans was called the Civic Crown. They had other names for it, but the Civic Crown. The Civic Crown was gifted, was awarded to a military individual who had saved the life of another Roman citizen in combat. In other words, he had happened upon maybe a hand-to-hand combat situation where it seemed hopeless for the Roman citizen, he's going to die, and this Roman soldier or officer comes in there and delivers him, he could be gifted, awarded the civic crown. It was a very high award, like a distinguished cross to the United States military. Four things were needed for him to be awarded that. Number one... He had to save the life of a Roman citizen in battle. Number two, that citizen had to testify of that himself. The one who was saved had to admit openly, yes, he saved my life. Without him, I would not be here. It could not be the testimony of somebody else who had seen it. It had to be the individual who was saved that gave the testimony. Number three, The enemy combatant had to be killed in order for that crown to be won. You couldn't just chase him off. You couldn't just say, boo, and there he goes. He had to die. Not a wound. He had to be dead. Number four. The ground that they fought over had to be held by the recipient of that crown. In other words, you couldn't just come in here and, and uh, have a fight and then drag your friend out. No, you had to stay and hold the ground. The civic crown. It was a big deal. Caesar Augustus wore a civic crown. It was made of usually oak leaves. But the highest award offered by the Roman Empire was called the crown of grass. The crown of grass. And that's what it was. Pliny the Elder, who was a contemporary of the Lord Jesus, himself uh, in the Roman Navy, wrote this about this award. But as for the crown of grass, it was never conferred except at a crisis of extreme desperation. Never voted except by the acclamation of the whole army. 
and never to anyone but to him who had been its preserver. You see, the crown of grass was awarded like the civic crown, the civic crown to the salvation of an individual, but the crown of grass was awarded by an army to an individual who had saved that army. So it was always awarded to a commander, a general, not to any lesser person. And in this case, it would be an encircled army, a besieged Roman army that was surrounded by a larger force of the enemy. And somehow a Roman legion, another Roman army, breaks through, breaks the siege, and saves not a person, but thousands. Then the besieged army would vote. They would vote. And unless it was unanimous, that crown would not be given to the commander of the, of the army that brought relief. It had to be unanimous. Pliny wrote other crowns were awarded by the generals to the soldiers. This alone by the soldiers to the general. This crown is also known as the siege crown from the circumstances of a beleaguered army being delivered and so preserved from fearful disaster. If we are to regard as a glorious and a hallowed reward the civic crown presented for preserving the life of a single citizen and him, perhaps, of the very humblest rank, what, pray, ought to be thought of a whole army being saved and indebted for its preservation to the valor of a single individual. Did you see a crown being awarded here in the text? Did you see it? What verse is it in? Somebody tell me what verse. And when they had platted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head. Now, did the Roman soldiers there think of this? I doubt it. I just think it's worth noting. But it's supposed to be a crown of grass. Why a crown of grass? Because on that field, the field on which that Roman legion would have perished, surrounded as they were, until this commander, this general, and his army break the siege and deliver that, that army. This ground is from where they would take the crown, the crown of grass. They would literally, listen, they didn't go get gold and make up something like we might. Once the army, the besieged army, had voted unanimously, they literally went to that field and they plucked grass from the very ground where this happened. And they wove it and braided it into a crown. And in a ceremony there, they gifted that to that general. Now, why a crown of thorns? Genesis 4, you don't need to turn there, rather, Genesis 3 
17, God said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. What marks the ground where we are besieged? It's cursed ground, thorns and thistles. Isn't it interesting that here in Matthew 27, Jesus is awarded the crown, made up from the foliage of the cursed ground on which you and I are besieged. Does Jesus have your vote, army? Does Jesus have your vote? It must be unanimous in order for him to receive the crown. Or are there times when you don't vote for him? You don't receive the relief from him. He didn't relieve me. I can provide my own relief. I'll work it through. Or I'll keep this besetting sin. I'll ally myself with the opponent, with the enemy. I'm fine. I want to look here at three people, really, in Matthew 27. Now, that was a long introduction getting you the idea of what we're looking at here. The first of these is Barabbas in Matthew 27. Barabbas. Well, let me ask you this. Is he besieged? Is he encircled? Is he in trouble? What does he have to say about it? What words do you have from Barabbas here? (laughs) Not a word, right? He's silent. Now, that's not to say as he never talked. I'm sure that he did. There's nothing that he said that's recorded here because that's not what's important. Here, he is simply guilty. Isn't he? Guilty. And what does Matthew here say that he's guilty of? Well, he really doesn't. He just says that he's a notable prisoner. Notable. Everyone knows of Barabbas, what he's done. John tells us that he's a robber. Luke and Mark both tell us that he's a murderer involved in sedition, insurrection, a murderer. Here, Barabbas stands guilty. Students, if we are to receive relief, we must know that we cannot do it ourselves. It's not by effort of our own. Barabbas is condemned. He has no hope. He's going to the cross until Jesus showed up. Somebody's going to break through to him. And I like the word here that's used in Matthew 27. And it says in verse 15, now at that feast, the governor was wont to, there's the word, release. If you were to ask Barabbas at this point, would you like to be released? 
what would that word mean to him? He's guilty, he's condemned, and now here's someone who can take my place. Release. Barabbas needs it. Barabbas is guilty. He is undeniably guilty. He is a silent. He's silent. So what is his part in this? He simply allows Jesus to take his place. There's nothing more that need be done on his part. He received. He did not resist. He walked free. Barabbas. And Jesus is that commander who came in, who broke through. And sure enough, you would have watched Barabbas walk out. Number two. Pilate's wife, we don't even know her name. We'll call her Mrs. Pilate. We don't know much about her. But actually, she talks. She does have words here. Well, I think Barabbas did too. We just don't, we don't have them recorded, but look here. We, we go now down to verse 19. When he, Pilate, was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. If Barabbas is undeniably guilty, she is an unlikely advocate. She's an unlikely advocate. Due to whatever dream, and that's as much as we know right there. That's as much as we know. She has a dream. And in this dream, she is convinced that Jesus is innocent. That he's, wow, might be sort of what he says he is. But he's at least not guilty. And she proclaims that as well. She's an unlikely advocate, proponent, promoter, defender, champion, in a way, sure, how many others could get a note to Pilate at this point? <laughs> that would be for Jesus. Who else would have that kind of access? She did. And she used it. If Barabbas was walking free, she was speaking free. There's the next step. Christ is coming. By the way, if Christ is being awarded in this fashion, if he... And I, I know that's not what it appears, certainly not what the Romans intended. But if he is truly that one who breaks the siege, who is he breaking the siege for here in Matthew 27? Barabbas? Sure, that's an easy one. Literally, physically, spiritually too? Did Jesus come to break the siege for Barabbas, spiritually? Well, of course. How about Pilate's wife? Yes? Pilate? And who is the opponent? Who is the enemy that must be cast down here? The Jews? The multitude? I know, the scribes and Pharisees. Or did Jesus die for them as well? Do you know, not everybody will recognize or even desire that. Not everyone will. Some will try to 
Some will misunderstand it, try to make it on their own, reject it out of hand. Christ's deliverance. You know, in 1905, a ship by the name of the General Slocum set sail. It was just a side wheel. It was a large side wheel. This is five years before the Titanic went down. No, it's seven years. Seven years before the Titanic. You've never heard of it, probably because of the Titanic, which took all of the media attention and social networking there in 1912. But in 1905, the General Slocum was chartered by a church in Manhattan to take a number of their congregants on a Sunday school picnic out to Long Island. So 1,400 church members boarded this, this boat. Oh, yeah, it was big. And on its way out past and as it headed to Rikers Island, for a Sunday school picnic further out, it caught fire. And it began to burn very rapidly while it was still setting sail, while it was still sailing there. And the captain didn't do the right things and the fire grew and he didn't get the relief that was needed and, and it really got bad. Eventually, a thousand people would die. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, in one afternoon, on a Saturday, bright, sunny, Sunday school picnic, and a thousand of your church family are gone. They would put the life jackets onto people who couldn't swim, and they would jump over only to find that the life jackets that were full of some kind of a foam had disintegrated, and when water permeated it, it became like mud. And they sank to the bottom almost immediately. Parents put it on their children, dropped them over the side to see them. People who did get into the water and were there trying to tread water, hanging on to something, then when somebody would come to bring them relief to, to save them, uh, somebody would swim to them, out of panic then they would lock them up. Their lifeline here and they would both die. Do you know you can't save somebody without your arms? Somebody in a panic would just put a hold on them. I, you're saving me. And not let go. Because they couldn't. They're in panic mode. And they would both drown. Many drown that way. You know, Jesus wants to save, deliver, Meet the need. Break through to you. Everyone. Every day. Right? And sometimes we have our own way that that needs to happen. Not his way. How much did Barabbas have to do? He just walked. He just received it. Frankly, if you've come to the point where you're you're further down the line here and it's not happening, just go back to Barabbas. Just receive it. It's that simple. Grace is free. The final one here that I want to look at just quickly as we close is in verse 32. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled 
to bear his cross. We don't know much about Simon of Cyrene. Mark 15, it says that in that account, Mark's account of this, that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus. Now, why, why would the author there tell us the names of the kids unless we were, somebody was supposed to go, oh, it was, oh, I know who they're talking about. The father of, right. Do you know that there's a Rufus named in the Bible? as being in ministry in Rome. Paul says in Romans 16, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I don't know whether that's, I can't know that. It just, it's interesting. You know, there's an Alexander who stood up for Paul in, in Ephesus. I don't know if that's, these are the boys of Simon of Cyrene. I don't know. Maybe. But here he is, compelled, as it were. He is an unintentional participant, helping the cause of Christ that day to move forward. Is that true? Did he help the cause of Christ to move forward? Are you? Do you know how many times Jesus said to different ones, take up your cross and follow me? And here's Simon who helped Jesus with his own cross. Are we doing that? Are we helping the cause of Christ to move forward. And if we're not, and if we're not interested, maybe we just need to go back and start again at Barabbas and let Jesus break through to us. All right, there's one more concept here as I close. How many went to missions camp this year? Missions camp. How many of you there met Mr. Cole? All right. He was here for security purposes just a couple of weeks ago. I got talking with him, and we were talking about things. He did some time there in Iraq. There he served in Iraq in the military. There is something called in the, in the United States military, a more recent invention. It's called a forward operating base. A forward operating base. Have you heard of that? A forward operating base. And I had heard of him, but as he got talking, we were recounting this. A forward operating base is a United States military base in enemy territory. That is the oddest thing. You would think you'd put your military bases on your own land. No, let's do this. Let's put our military base on your land. Oh, wow. Yeah, how many of you would say, oh, I'd like to go serve in one of those? You're literally completely surrounded on all sides by the enemy. It's called an FOB, forward operating base. It has high walls and barbed wire, and some of them are so large, they have an airport in them. And uh, there they are, all the way around. They have insurgents, terrorists, weapons. How in the world can they operate this way? Pretty effectively, actually. We did it in Iraq. We did it in Afghanistan. You stand in there with your binoculars. You can look around. There they are. Their enemy is all around us. There it is. And yet they have not overtaken us. How can that be? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you how. Because, like, every night, the gates open up. <laughs> they open the gates up. Not so that they can come in, but that we can go out. 
And out of there go Humvees and trucks and we take our guns with us. Don't you know we take some guns with us? A few. And we go out there and go visiting. We do. <laughs> we'll call it what you will. They go out into enemy territory and uh, they get some things done out there. And by morning, they're back in again. Doors closed again. And then the next day, it's pretty quiet in there. I wonder why. Huh? It's quiet in here. Tonight, guess what? We're going to go out and do that again. That's right. On the offensive, from the besieged area, forward operating base, we are purposefully in enemy territory. Because we're holding a few acres of it right here. And from here, we're going out there and making a difference. Now listen, what would happen if they stopped going out there and making a difference? You know, visitation. What would happen? Well, Mr. Cole told me. So over time, the enemy comes in. They get more bold and more bold and they attack. And, and pretty soon, you're going to see the deterioration of that forward operating base. They're going to have to leave. They're going to have to be evacuated. The only way for that base to survive is to be on the offensive. Are we? Look, you'll always have, in some fashion, some form, the enemy around you. You, you, you live in it, you minister there. Now, they are not the enemy, but the devil is out there. You've seen him out there. You've seen his culture. If we hold up, if we become self-focused, and we don't go out there and make it, if your life is not purposed, to go out from where you are and make a difference, guess what? It's going to close in on you. It's going to deteriorate. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ broke through and provides for you all that you need. All. If you don't know in a given situation how to access Christ and his supply, his relief to deliver me from, I don't know, anger, fear, worry, or actual besetting sins, then somebody can help you with that. Get that help. But don't allow your life to deteriorate because of these things. Christ broke through, and the crown of thorns is his reward for having done so. Let's bow.